and welcome back to another episode of the Empowered Birth Podcast. I had the most amazing time interviewing my favorite birth author, Dr. Sarah Buckley. I was so incredibly honored to have the opportunity just to speak with her and have her share her deep knowledge of physiological birth on my podcast. This is an episode that is jam-packed with helpful information that you may want to listen to a second time, and for sure you're going to want to share with a friend. Before we get into the show, let me introduce my guest. Dr. Sarah Buckley is a trained as a GP with qualifications in GP obstetrics. She has been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997 and is the author of the internationally best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Sarah has a special interest in the hormones of physiological labor and birth and the impacts of interventions. In 2015, she completed an extensive report on this topic, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection in the U.S. She is currently a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Queensland, researching oxytocin in labor and birth. She has co-authored several papers on oxytocin in labor, birth, and breastfeeding. Sarah is also the mother of four children, all born at home and now in their teenage years and beyond. She lives in the semi-rural outskirts of Brisbane, and today she shares more in-depth about the hormonal orchestration and just the beauty of how our bodies work when left alone to do what it does best. This episode will empower you, encourage you, and spur you on to learn more about how your body was designed to birth. But before we get into the show, I do want to announce our book study. It's starting in February. I'm so excited to be taking a deeper look at Dr. Sarah's book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. We will be starting February 21st at 6.30 p.m. Central Time. It will be a 10-week, one-hour study. You can sign up today by going to patreon.com slash empoweredbirthpodcast for, and signing up for any amount. You can choose three, five, ten, twenty dollars per month. I just want everyone to be able to have the access to this study. By joining Patreon, you also keep this podcast running and the ability to bring more amazing guests like Dr. Sarah on the show. So sign up today as this will be an incredibly helpful book as you're learning more about physiological birth. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to the Empowered Birth Podcast. I'm Allie McLean, registered nurse, home birth doula, and former feminist. My mission is to guide you into the freedom that is God's design for femininity, birth, and motherhood. There's a movement happening of powerful women uniting around finding out God's best for us. You're going to find information here that you won't find in your basic childbirth education class. You'll hear stories of women and birth professionals who are experiencing the redeeming experience that birth can be. You're going to get all the information you need to confidently navigate your way from pregnancy to postpartum and beyond. Are you ready to go on a Holy Spirit empowered adventure? Then stick around, you're exactly where you should be. Hi, Dr. Sarah. This is so exciting to have you on the show. I 
am just thrilled to be able to talk with you today. And we have so many amazing topics. So I'm excited to see where we get to, but would you take a moment and just share a little bit who you are and what you do with my audience? That would be great. Thanks, Ali. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak to all of you. So big hello to everybody out there listening. So I'm a a GP or family physician by training. I don't work in that way at the moment. I have four children and all my children were born at home. And those experiences really oriented me towards uh, natural birth, natural parenting, I guess you could say. And after the birth of my third baby, actually, I started writing about pregnancy, birth and parenting. And what I became really interested in is, you know, the things that I learned at medical school or things that are that are kind of conventional. And then my own experiences were so different. Like, how do I bring these two things together? And that's when I started writing and researching some of the, the science or the understandings around things like, you know, home birth, like co-sleeping, like the physiology of birth. And that's really become my focus, the hormones of labor and birth, how are they designed? I call it mother nature's superb design. What happens when they disrupt? what hormonal gaps are produced, how can we fill in those hormonal gaps. So that's really become my passion. And I wrote a big report about that in 2015 called Hormonal. Oh, my book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, is, is all about that and all of those choices for parents as well, looking into things like co-sleeping and gentle parenting. And then in 2015, I was asked to write a report on the hormones of labor and birth. And I wrote a report called Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, which is available online for free. And that really took me into the hormones in a big way. And currently, I'm actually doing a PhD on oxytocin and childbirth. And I'm incredibly privileged to have a great team of supervisors, including Kirsten Uvnas Moberg, who's a um, expert, a world expert on oxytocin and childbirth in Sweden. So we're having a fun time um, writing and researching you know, what, what does the research tell us about oxytocin in particular. And it, it's kind of a bit of a, a snapshot really of all the things, you know, how it's designed to work, how it's evolved over millions of years, how we're mammals because oxytocin is a mammalian hormone. Um, so really that's my focus at the moment. That is so fascinating. I did read a part of your 2015 report and it is just so fascinating how the body is set up to work and these hormones just work so amazing together. So oxytocin is just wonderful. And I'm excited to hear more about that. But first you were, or you are a physician. So you went to medical school, you said you had to kind of address these differences between the conventional, what you were taught and what you experienced. So how did those kind of address those beliefs? And why did you choose to have a home birth with your first baby? Not a lot of people that I meet end up having a home birth with their first because of a lot of fear and just a lot of uh, lack of knowledge. So what was it that led you into that for your first baby? Yes, well, it's interesting. Like I come from a very medical background. My father was a GP, family physician, and his father as well. And they were both heavily involved with childbirth, like supporting their own patients and their practices. There's stories about my grandfather going out on horseback to care for women in the bush who were having difficulty giving birth. And he was very skilled with forceps in the pre-cesarean days. So no doubt saved women's lives in, in tricky situations. And then my father actually went to England and trained in the 50s when there actually was home birth still happening in England. And I found out subsequently that both my father and my mother were actually born at home. So my mother was actually attended by her grandmother, who was a granny midwife for the area. 
So that's all kind of in the background. But then, as you say, at medical school, it was very much conventional medicine, you know, hospitals, birth is safe, home birth is dangerous. And that's certainly what I was taught. And, and my parents had that attitude to some extent, really, because we were all subject to kind of cultural beliefs at the time that were supposedly science, but really weren't if you, if you look into it a bit deeper. I guess for myself, I had always had an interest in kind of outside the mainstream and kind of alternative perspectives. And I don't know, I just had this trust in my body. And I was also really fortunate to have supported two friends giving birth at home, um, one back in New Zealand where I lived to actually, that friend actually went to hospital, but she had a very intense and long labor and we were part of the support team. And my other friend over in um, Australia where I live now, also had a beautiful home birth. And, you know, what I got to see was the difference between the home as, a, as an environment for labor and birth and then the hospitals where I'd been trained, you know, quite recently. And I saw, well, that is a really different experience for the woman, a different experience for the baby probably as well. And I want a home birth, you know, I don't want that oversight. I don't want that interference. And especially as a doctor, you know, um, there's a great film called Why Not Home that, that talks to or mentions it in the context of health professionals. And actually a lot of health professionals, and I know that you're a health professional too, end up having their babies at home. And for me, one of the reasons was because as a health professional going into a healthcare system, often we get overtreated, you know, we get a lot of heterogenic medicine, and that certainly happened in my family, or we tend to get undertreated because the staff don't quite know where to place you as a, as a doctor in the system, particularly, and I witnessed that at medical school as well, and I didn't want either of those things. So I knew that if I had my own midwife and planned to have my baby at home, that I said to her, just treat me like any other pregnant woman, because I knew it was different on the other side of the, of the equation, really. So yeah, a lot of instinct. I was interested in the evidence that was around at the time, which wasn't very much. My first daughter was born in 1990. And actually, what's interesting was there was quite a lot of home birth through the, the late 80s and 90s. This is um, I gave birth to my first three children in Melbourne um, with a doctor, actually, Peter Lucas, who was fantastic. And there, he was he had a busy home birth practice at the time. So I didn't, you know, I kind of found, like I'm sure many listeners have, you know, you kind of find your subculture. And because natural birth is natural and and also like it's it's not really understood out there so you know find your tribe I mean that was important to me too to find my tribe and then of course once I've had that experience of such a great birth with my first baby uh, it was a no-brainer to go on and have that with all my subsequent children as well yeah once you experience it it's hard to go back to the medical system and how you're treated in there and it is fascinating I guess I never thought I don't go to the hospital too often, but yeah, they treat you a little bit different. They don't know where to quite put you in the system. I'm sure it's a lot different as well as being a doctor, but yeah, that is so interesting. I love the documentary, Why Not Home? That was so wonderful. Just thinking about how you followed your intuition. There's a lot of women who have this gut feeling of, I would really like to stay home, or I would really like to make a gentle parenting decision, or I would really like to extended breastfeeding. But our culture says that's not what the science says. The science says you need to sleep train by this time. You need to be done nursing because there's, you know, no benefits after a year. You need to birth in a hospital because that is where the guaranteed safety is. So coming from a doctor's perspective, who've, who's just done so much research, what would you say to a woman who is kind of fighting between this intuition and then what the culture says that the science says? 
Yes, that's a really good question, Ali. Thank you for that. So I think the first thing to say is that I was really lucky to study anthropology at university. And I had this lightning bolt moment where I was sitting in an anthropology tutorial and we were studying social anthropology at the time, which is looking at cultures. And I had this light bulb moment with, oh my God, our, the way we do things in this culture is just one way of doing things. Like it's not the gold standard. It's not what everyone does. And there's different ways that other cultures do things. And there's ways that other cultures could look at our culture as well. So I've got this huge expansion in my vision of humanity, really, that it's not just a, what we're taught is not universal. Like I said, it's one thing. But also anthropology has been a touchstone for me because, you know, we are mammals and mammals have been reproducing successfully for 63 million years as far as we know. So, you know, that's the, that's the evolution of hu humans as well. And we've evolved to be success successfully reproduced in the wild, which is quite a tricky environment, right? You can't put your baby down. You've got to be careful where you give birth. And that's, we've evolved with these instincts that we have to keep our babies close, for example. And our babies have evolved with this, this instinct to be kept close, you know, for a baby to be put down. Like imagine if you transfer that into a you know wild setting, that baby's at risk of its life. So it's going to cry. And if the baby doesn't cry, you know, those babies in the past that didn't cry didn't survive. So, you know, it's really been a fundamental touchstone of me that we are mammals. We have evolved in this way and our instincts can guide us, you know, when it comes to decisions like general parenting, like co-sleeping, for example, you know, those things can support us. Here's the second thing to say about science. And again, this came from an experience I had. I remember going to this uh, lecture about medical education when I was at medical school and the lecturer stood up and said, the half-life of science is 10 years. And I'll explain what that means. So the half-life is kind of a pharmacological term. It's like if you get given a drug, how long is it in your bloodstream? How long before 50% of it disappears? So, you know, if you start off with a level of 10, how if it takes two hours to go down to five, then the half-life is two hours. So, the half-life of, well, he was talking about medical studies, which means that in 10 years' time, half of what we thought was true is not going to be true. So I thought, whoa, that's actually quite interesting. And I think now with the, the burgeoning of research, that's probably a lower number. So it really gave me a perspective, you know, what science can tell us. And that also part of the scientific method, to be honest. The scientific method is we're always, truth is only ever what we know at the time. And then another study might come out and that could turn it on its head or add something, or it could even underline what we thought before but but that's the scientific method and the other thing is especially doing research myself at the moment and looking more critically at research is that the the that answers that we get out of science depend on the question that we asked I've got a very good example of that in childbirth so for years maternity care professionals cut the cord immediately after birth of the newborn baby because the studies had shown that that this group of activities, you know, early cord clamping, pulling on the cord, control cord traction and giving a, a oxytocic drug prevented hemorrhage. And that was a question that asked, did this package of management called the active management of the third stage prevent hemorrhage? And it, yes, it was. So let's keep doing it. But they hadn't asked the question, does the early clamping of the cord contribute to that. So we did this quite unphysiological thing. I mean, nobody out there in the wild's got a cord clamp, right? If you go back to anthropology, or as my friend Sarah Wickham said, if we were designed to clamp the baby's cord immediately, we'd be born with a cord clamp on our thigh, right? So, so that's not evolutionary. It's not physiological. And as it turned out, it's not actually good for the baby. So because we asked the question in this way, this is the answer that we got. And this is the practices that we did that actually weren't 
physiological. So I've kind of come back to, well, what is physiology? What is our biology? How have we evolved in that way? And I guess for me, studying the hormones and knowing about the hormones kind of feeds into all of that because we have these hormones as part of evolution. We've evolved in this particular way to survive in this particular way. We're mammals. I think that's a really important thing to know because a lot of the practices that we do in parenting even are mammalian practices. And, and mammal, by the way, definition, mammals have mammary glands, they suckle their young. So all mammals have young that are born in an immature state that can't look after themselves straight away and they need this dedicated maternal care and they also need lactation or, or breast milk or species-specific milk. So, you know, the, the hormones really, for me, kind of ties it all together. But I think also, you know, talking about addressing the listeners here, you know, your instincts are reliable. Your instincts are biological. Your instincts are anthropological. Your instincts have been honed through millions of years and your baby has instincts as well. And you really can trust your instinct. And not only that, but kind of at a deeper level, I really, you know, believe there's like a well, we could call it spiritual, but in the end, there's probably we'll probably find science to support it as well. But, you know, when we grow a baby in our bodies, that's the closest relationship we'll ever have with another human being. I mean, Im imagine being kind of tied to another person for like nine months, like you'd get to know them quite well, right? And you'd kind of have an instinct about what their likes were, what their dislikes were. And it's even more so with a baby because we have this placenta, which is the interface between the mother and the baby. So in a biological sense, we're always providing for what the baby orders. Yeah, the baby needs higher glucose, needs a bit more glucose to fuel its growth. It sends hormones to the placenta that increase our blood sugar. So that goes across the placenta to the baby. You know, we're always specifying or, you know, we're individualizing what the baby needs across the placenta. And the baby's telling us what, sending biological signals that tell us what they need. And I really believe that this is happening on a deeper level, on an intuitive level. You know, we can tune into our babies and have a sense of their personalities because everybody has a personality, right? It doesn't start straight after birth and what their individual needs are. And even, you know, to the practices, like some babies, I believe some babies really care about whether their cords cut straight away and some babies don't really care, you know, and, and we can kind of tune into that on into the baby's wavelength and pregnancy. So that's a kind of spiritual perspective, I guess. But as I said, you know, it's interesting because so many of these things end up being backed by science. So who knows what we'll discover in the end about all of that too. Oh yeah, that is beautiful. I know, I mean, I've been pregnant three times and each time I get more and more in tune with the baby that is growing inside of me. And it does take practice to listen to that intuition and then make decisions based upon that. But I just love how oftentimes the science does back up what our intuitions are saying. So listening to that is such a beautiful way of honoring your body and your baby's body and just making those decisions that are best for both of you. So that's so beautiful. I love how you mentioned that we are mammals. Like we were literally built to feed our young and to be close to our babies. And there is such a connection there. You did mention that we were made to successfully reproduce and just that evolution of time. Our bodies are smart. They know how to birth, but I have seen somewhere and I cannot place where, and I, I wonder if you have any insight on this. It does say that like after three generations of C-sections, that generation is less likely to have a vaginal birth and, and a higher likelihood of having a C-section. Do you know anything about that or how that could be possible? Or is that 
No, I don't know. I haven't seen that research. And there's, it's interesting, that would be a really valuable study because there's not many, or I don't think I've ever seen that transgenerational studies in birth. I, I mean, you know, 63 million years, that's how long we've evolved our birthing system. So I don't really think that in three generations, we're going to change that. So that's, first of all, the first thing to say is I think our biology is more solid than that. So I don't think that's true. I think that there are kind of attitudes and a whole lot of psychology that might come into that, where Mm. if a woman's had a cesarean, she might be scared of, you know, and she's probably had a fear of birth. She might've had traumatic birth. I mean, she could certainly pass some of those attitudes onto her children, you know, I mean, not consciously, obviously, but, you know, you could end up with a, I mean, and it's a cultural norm to be afraid of birthright. So that certainly could be passed on. I mean, transgenerationally as well. I mean, there's, there are some other things that can be passed on transgenerationally that we might call epigenetic or, but, you know, gut flora is one thing, you know, so gut flora is the first microbiome, the first bacteria, the first friendly friends we have really when we're born, you know, it comes from the mother's vagina and it covers the newborn baby, the baby sucks and swallows it, it it, um, colonizes the gut, it colonizes the baby's skin. And that is different, you know, that would that if you had three generations of cesareans, you certainly could have a different gut flora at the end, which could have health implications. But I'm not sure that that would impact cesarean really yeah, as far as I know. But that's, that's, those are really good questions. Like what happens in the longer term when we do things outside of our normal biology? And look, to be honest, there are good reasons why people have cesarean. Sometimes it saves the life of the mother or the life of the baby. But generally the reasons for that are, have kind of been, what do we say, selected out, you know, like our, our mother and her mother and her mother all gave birth successfully. So it's unlikely that in, you know, in a generation that that is going to change. And also like we're also generally aware well-nourished population I think that makes a difference too you know my father told stories he said and he said an interesting thing he said when I did my training in the 40s and 50s we did see women that had actual pelvic abnormalities with the pelvic bones from rickets from not getting enough um, vitamin d because that wasn't really known and they weren't going out and about and they were covered head to toe probably but, but he said now that's not happening but I think the main problems women have in birth is psychological and and that's probably a little bit narrow to say that because there's a lot of social and attitudinal things as well but it was an interesting reflection that you know we have this healthy well-nourished population and I really believe that you know we can if we have the right circumstances you know most women can give birth successfully physiologically normally. That is very comforting to hear because the C-section rate seems out of control but like you said there are some really valid reasons of needing to have one. And I love that you mentioned the psychological reasons. I mean, I've heard women say, well, my family just doesn't dilate. And, you know, she's a third generation C-section just because she's been told all of her life that her mother didn't dilate, her grandmother didn't dilate. So I can see how that could be passed on transgenerationally. And then a good point about the gut flora that is very, very helpful to think about. Um, There's always implications to the decisions that we make. So great to think long-term. I would love for you to share a little bit about you. You write about this hormonal uh, orchestration in your book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. If you have not read this book, listeners, 
you need it. It is so good. And I've told you so many times already, just emailing and talking to you, just like how amazing this book was for me. And it really did help rewire my brain from thinking because I was told by my physician that my pelvis was too small and I would never have a vaginal birth. And to read the information that you have presented in your book was able to you know, replace that lie with truth, with research. And I was able to psychologically like erase that and replace it. And it helps so much uh, with my birth. So I highly recommend that I will post the link in the show notes, but can you go a little bit into that hormonal orchestration, just a beauty of how all of these hormones work together during pregnancy and birth? Yes, well, um, it's what I call Mother Nature's superb design. And as we've mentioned, it's really 63 million years old. And it's a fairly similar process in all mammals because all mammals, well, I've got to say placental mammals because over here in Australia, we have a lot of marsupials who give birth in a slightly different way. They give birth to very small babies that end up in the pouch and suckle, et cetera. But placental mammals, which is most mammals that exist in the the world today, including humans, have to give birth by contracting the uterus to get the baby out. There's no other way for these 63 million years until very recently. So we had this superb design that's designed for the woman to labor effectively and efficiently, to give birth effectively and efficiently, for the baby to be ready to be born, to adapt to life outside the womb, which is like the most extraordinary transition if you think about it, and then to survive and thrive and go on to produce more offspring who survive and thrive. So that's what I call Mother Nature's superb design, and that's what's hard hardwired into us through these 63 million years of mammalian evolution. So that's the foundation of what I'm saying. And by the way, if you don't believe in evolution, if that's not in your belief set, you could call it God's superb design because it works the same way. Whatever it is, we are superbly designed. Yeah, we're, we're designed to do it. Okay. So part of this design is what I call the hormonal orchestration. And you know, what we know is just a pinch compared to what we don't know. Going back to that discussion about science, you know, we've got to ask the questions first. And we haven't actually asked many questions about normal birth. You know, a lot of the research is in abnormal birth or interventions, or is this intervention better than that intervention? You know, what can we do to kind of prevent bad outcomes? But how can we support good outcomes is really a a most valuable question to ask. And how can we support not just good outcomes, but, you know, a positive experience? And it's, There's so many things that have happened for me since I started writing about pregnancy and birth, seeing all these social changes. And for example, the World Health Organization, you know, promotes that birth shouldn't just be mother and baby surviving. It should be a positive experience. So we're really moving into acknowledging and emphasizing, saying, you know, it's not just about a live baby. It's about the experience for the mother because it is designed to be a positive experience. And I'll I'll explain how all that happens. So my friend, the late great Janine Pavati Baker, when someone asked her how long her labors were, she had six children, she'd say categorically nine months because all the preparation for labor and birth starts from that very moment of conception. You know, the baby, the mother's body, it's all getting lined up for a successful labor and birth. And one of the studies that I've done in my PhD was we looked at oxytocin levels during pregnancy, during labor and birth in physiological birth. And what we found was that the, the woman's pregnant, um, the pregnant woman's 
oxytocin levels increase as pregnancy goes on. And the thing about oxytocin, about the magic of this hormone, it's actually quite an ancient mammalian hormone, is that it's made in the brain. It's made in these parts of the brain called the hypothalamus. It's stored in the pituitary gland and released into the body, like we've known that for 100 years. But what we know now is that it has effects within the brain because it's released within the brain. So what's happening all through that process of pregnancy is oxytocin is giving these central brain effects, which is calming, connecting, you know, like if you can tune into that in your pregnancy, you might find that, you know, you actually have this hormonal help to stay out of stress because we know that stress is not good for any pregnant animal. So that's mother nature's hormonal help to help us to stay out of stress. And the levels get more and more as we reach term, as we reach the, the onset of labor, the physiological onset of labor, as I call it, the natural onset of labor. So at the same time that oxytocin levels are going up, we also have a lot of things happening in the oxytocin system. And by the way, I'm talking about oxytocin mostly because that's what I'm studying, but also that's what is most studied. That's what most of the research is focused on that we know about the hormones. So as um, labor approaches as we which nobody knows when it's going to be right it could be tomorrow it could be two weeks like that's the mystery of of birth and that's the that's the wisdom of it you know like thinking that birth should happen on a particular day is a bit like thinking every child should walk on their first birthday you know it doesn't happen there's a biological range of normal biologically 37 weeks to 42 weeks is normal labor and birth so there's a whole conversation about that but anyway the way it's designed is that the mother is at this peak of readiness and, and again going back to evolution, the mother has to be fully ready to have an efficient labor and birth because birthing in the wild is a a dangerous occupation. Yeah, there's predators around and the laboring female, I'm talking about all mammals here, is behaving a bit strangely, like strange noises, strange smells, uh, the placenta, the blood, the baby, you know, just ripe for predation, right? So the mother has to be at the peak of readiness to have an efficient and effective labor and birth that's as short a duration as possible so that her exposure to predators is as short as possible. So it's all designed to make labor as efficient as possible. But that depends on these preparations that the mother's body is undergoing. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But obviously for the baby, the baby has to make this incredible transition from life in the womb. I call it hotel de womb where everything's done for the baby. You know, the baby's nutrition and food is delivered and the waste are taken away and the baby's rocked and kept warm and gets oxygen from the mother through breathing and offloads the heat to the mother. And then suddenly the baby is ejected from that and has to do all those things itself. So it's an incredible transition. Not only that, as I mentioned, the the only way out for placental mammals is through these contractions of labor and the contractions have to be strong enough to push the baby out. And each of those contractions is going to squeeze the placenta and deprive the baby of blood and oxygen. There's no way around that. So the baby has to be adapted for those periods of what we call hypoxia, low oxygen, and also be adapted to life outside the womb. And those things actually happen together through another set of hormones for the baby. But let's go back to oxytocin. We can come back to that. So as far as oxytocin is concerned, it's not just the hormone, it's the whole system. So it's being released in the brain in pregnancy. It's um, helping the mother to feel calm and connected. And at the same time, the whole system is getting activated. And it's actually activated by a hormone called estrogen, which is that kind of archetypal female hormone. And as estrogen levels go up towards the end of pregnancy, that upregulates or activates the whole oxytocin system, including oxytocin receptors. So what we know is as, as labor approaches, the woman's uterus becomes more sensitive to the even the 
low levels of oxytocin she's producing because of these re receptor increases. And I'll share an anecdote about that. So I breastfed through my um, second pregnancy. I was, was suckling my two-year-old, my toddler, and she'd come in every morning and have a little suckle. That was fine. But the morning she came in when I went into labor, she started, and it was fine up till the day before I went into labor. But the day I went into labor, she, she came in and asked for a breastfeed and I put it on and I literally had to throw her off. I got the most massive contraction from the same stimulus and, and the same oxytocin release, but this massive increase in sensitivity in my uterus. And that was the day I went into labor and gave birth to my second child. So that's an, an anecdote, but we know, you know, from measuring oxytocin receptors in women's uteruses, the closer you get to labor, the more receptors there are, which means that, that labor and birth are going to be more effective and efficient. And that's only one little subset of a whole lot of preparations that happen that make labor effective and efficient, that prepare the, the laboring woman for labor, that prepare her actually for mothering as well, because oxytocin is a hormone of mothering, along with other hormones like prolactin, like endorphins, even noradrenaline are, are part of the mothering cocktail. But all of these changes are happening because it's not just about birth for the mother, it's about ensuring that the offspring that she gives birth to will survive and thrive. And if you think about you know, ourselves as mammals and the way that that might happen for other mammals, I mean, dogs, cats, elephants, right? They don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their babies. It has to happen through the processes of labor and birth. And that's what happens. So as the onset of labor and birth, we get this increase in oxytocin. We can measure it in the bloodstream. Levels go up three to four times from the beginning to the end of labor when we give birth. But what's also important is not just the contractions of the uterus that are happening, but this release in the brain is helping the, the laboring female with calming, connecting, pain relieving effects. I mean, imagine a first time mammal who's never given birth before and it's like, oh my God, what's happening here? And then oxytocin's there to help her to be calm and connected, to help relieve pain, to switch on the reward and pleasure centers. And this is critical. So those peaks of oxytocin in the brain activate those dopamine reward and pleasure centers that you might've heard about. But basically what it means is that when she meets her baby or babies for the first time, we're talking all mammals here, she's going to have this powerful reward and pleasure center activation, then she's going to meet her babies. And from a kind of brain um, neurology point of view, that, that those parts of her brain get fired and wired together. So the sensory input from her babies, the smell, the, the, the licking, the, the, the sight, the taste, the feeling will get fired and wired with the reward and pleasure centers. And she will regard her babies as a source of reward and pleasure. And that's what's going to motivate her to give that incredible dedicated care that every mammalian newborn needs. Because of course, you know, another mammal, like why would they take care of babies when it's such hard work, right? And the reason is because of this incredible reward center activation and motivation that happens through the processes of labor and birth. And another interesting thing that we found out through doing some of this research is that something's happening during labor and birth that actually switches on the mother's skin to sensitize it to skin-to-skin -skin contact to release lots of oxytocin. So I said that levels go up three to four times from the beginning of labor to birth, but then in that first hour after birth, they go up at least one and a half times and even up to 10 times. And so this massive oxytocin release to activate the reward and pleasure centers, it's that euphoria that if you haven't experienced, I hope that you do experience after birth. It's like, oh my God, this is so, I'm thinking with my, my fourth baby, oh my God, like this, I can't believe how rewarding this is. It's like winning the lotto twice. I've got this beautiful baby. 
baby and I've had this incredible experience. It was like mind blowing, really. So that's what Mother Nature designs for us is that powerful activation of reward and pleasure centers. However, it is for you. You don't all have to feel like you've won the lotto twice. But, you know, this reward and pleasure centers, which is, I call it ecstatic birth, but it's actually hardwired into us to ensure that we take care of our babies and that we do that in a way that rewards us, that's pleasurable for us, that reduces stress for us so that also that we can be in this perfect state, mother and baby after birth, this calm, connected, parasympathetic nervous system. It's the rest and digest system, switching off the sympathetic nervous system, the stress system, the fight or flight. You know, this is another action of oxytocin as it balances our, our autonomic nervous system towards the parasympathetic oasis from the sympathetic, which again is important after birth. Then we're in this perfect state to relax. We usually lie down, a baby's skin to skin on us. Hopefully the baby's got these high levels of oxytocin and start suckling. So we have the, the perfect recipe, perfect hormonal orchestration to for breastfeeding and bonding. And they're not just good feelings, as I hope I keep emphasizing. It's really about survival of the species, you know, that lactation and all mammals and, and us until recently, if lactation wasn't successful, the babies wouldn't survive. So we're hardwired to be successful. The baby's hardwired to search for the nipple, to, to do the breast core, to find the nipple, to actually, it's interesting, there was a study where they, recorded the mother's oxytocin level in relation to the baby's activities in the first hour after birth. And actually what peaked the mother's oxytocin more than anything was the baby's hand massage on the breast. That put the mother's oxytocin levels up to 10 times higher than they even were at birth. So those, you know, those, the, the breast massage that the baby does before suckling in that first hour. And there is something magic about that first hour because of these oxytocin peaks. We have endorphin peaks. We have prolactin coming in as well for successful breastfeeding. The magic hour, we call it an early sensitive period. It's recognized by the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative, which is a global initiative to keep mothers and babies together, skin to skin in that first hour. And the reason for that is because it also enhances breastfeeding success. So physiological birth and normal pregnancy, physiological onset of labor, the, the physiology of labor and birth. Also, the baby's oxytocin, as I mentioned, is released during labor and birth. The baby has peak levels for this magical hour for the baby as well. And that actually helps the baby to counteract stress. The baby also has a whole stress system activation in labor and birth. They call it the stress of being born. And, you know, what is it, maybe 10, 15 years ago, people were saying, oh, you know, the stress of birth is bad for the baby. We should be protecting the baby from stress. But now we realize that that stress system activation for the baby, which can involve adrenaline and noradrenaline levels so high it would give an adult a stroke, but it's perfect for a baby. That's exactly what the baby needs to withstand the, these rhythmic contractions of labor and the hypoxia and the lack of blood flow to the brain and heart, which is maintained through this stress hormone cascade called the, called the catacomb colomine surge. So the stress of labor and birth is, is critical actually for the baby's transitions, especially the baby's breathing transitions. This might make sense to you if you know that cesarean babies often have difficulty with breathing or are more likely to, about 6% have difficulty with breathing after a pre-labor cesarean. Cesarean babies also often have a low blood sugar. And again, that's an effect of these stress hormones to raise the baby's blood sugar for that interim between when the baby comes out and when the mother's milk comes in. Cesarean babies also have a problem with keeping their body temperature. And again, that's something that happens through this surge of stress hormones, the catecholamine surge in labor and birth. It helps the baby to start burning the brown fat, which keeps the baby warm. So all of these superb design, as I call it, is present for the baby as well to help the 
baby to uh, to tolerate the stresses of labor and then to be ready for that incredible transition and I mean it's incredible when you think about it that most babies do make that transition successfully I mean from being in the womb to suddenly having to do all these things themselves particularly breathe when they've never breathed before when the lungs have never you know transferred oxygen across I mean it, it really is extraordinary and then as I said not just hardwired for a successful transition at birth but hardwired for reproductive success lifelong through optimizing the baby's nutrition through breastfeeding optimizing the mother's well-being through breastfeeding getting a continual updating a continual dosage of oxytocin through the letdown reflex with breastfeeding that's keeping that mother in that calm and connected state keeping mother and baby connected to each other I just used to remember you know the end of a breastfeeding episode I just look at my babies and they'd be so sweet and tender and I just would play with their feet and all those mothering hormones that were that I got another dose of with each breastfeeding episode so it's all designed for long-term survival for reproductive success in the long term for mothers for babies of all mammalian species and that's true for human women as well in a nutshell oh it's truly an amazing design I just oh the way you laid it out was so beautiful and that reward to have the baby that reward system you were talking about truly transformational when you do experience and I I love seeing these birth photographers take pictures of these moms like immediately after birth you just see something so amazing on these mothers faces you know that it's just the best day of their lives it's beautiful and this is one of the reasons I just I love bringing people like you on the show is birth really does impact motherhood. And so talking about this physiological process and the, the reward that you get from experiencing physiological birth really does move into your motherhood. And I just see that as so important. So you did mention how when you have contractions, it does put more stress in and the baby can have hypoxia, right? But the baby is adapted to experiencing that with normal contractions, correct? Yes, that's correct. And in fact, what's really interesting is now I mentioned how that's a benefit for babies to go through a vaginal birth compared to a cesarean. In fact, some studies nowadays are looking at using that mechanism and actually trying to get the mother's uterus to contract a bit, give her Mm. synthetic oxytocin so the baby gets some of that hypoxia before the cesarean and and maybe have better breathing outcomes. So, you know, from seeing the stress of being born as a bad thing, we're actually now realizing it's a good thing and that the baby is superbly designed to deal with that. And activates every system within the baby to prepare it for birth so it's actually unnecessary it's a good stress a U, eu eu stress is the term we use and for the mother as well actually so the stress of labor activates some of the catecholamines but cortisol the medium term stress mm-hmm. hormone and cortisol is actually part of the cocktail of love hormones when we fall in love we release cortisol you know someone said no matter what facet of love you know in every facet of love there's cortisol and so what we found is that when mother have high levels of cortisol after the birth I found their babies smell more hedonic more pleasurable yeah so it's part of that attachment package so the stress of birth is good for the baby and good for the mother you stress I mean I'm not saying stress over the top but I'm saying you stress physiological stress sure so when synthetic oxytocin or what we call pitocin or cinetocin some people may be more sensitive to that do you see more hypoxia in babies who have been exposed to this synthetic oxytocin versus babies who have not? 
Well, yes, definitely. And um, that's why the, that's the reason you, you need monitoring if you have synthetic oxytocin. I mean, it's, you know, like I say to women, if you're offered you know, some, an intervention that requires monitoring, you know, there's a risk to your baby. So the problem with synthetic oxytocin, and this is actually a paper we're working on at the moment with Kirsten Ubnas-Moberg, the problem with it is, well, several things. One is it's synthetic form of the oxytocin we produce ourselves. So it's exactly the same molecule. But when we produce oxytocin, and as I mentioned, it, it's, it's produced in the brain and it goes not just from the brain to the body, but within the brain as well. So there's calming, connecting, pain relieving effects, switching on reward and pleasure center. Synthetic oxytocin, when we inject it into the body, doesn't have those effects. Yeah. So it doesn't have calming, connecting, pain relieving effects of its own. But what it does is cause stronger uterine contractions. And those contractions are stronger and closer together. So there's less time in the middle, not just that they're stronger. So it's more of a, hypoxic stress, I guess you could say for the baby, but the baby also has less recovery time. And it seems that that's one of the critical aspects of the component. We were looking at some research in sheep, actually, where they measured the baby's oxygen levels and the baby could recover as long as they had a reasonable episode in between. They could even, you know, cut the whole, cut the cord off, you know, stop the baby's blood supply totally for a minute. But as long as the baby had a recovery, they could get their oxygen levels back. But if that interval between contractions gets too short, that's when it's dangerous for the baby. So that's some of the things we're looking at in our paper at the moment. So definitely risks for the baby. And, you know, there's a long list of papers you could read about that, you know, that, that the baby's more likely to have low oxygen, to have higher levels of acid in the blood, which are reflective of metabolic stresses. The baby's more likely to have low APGARs. There's some studies, the baby's more likely to go into NICU if the baby's had um, exposure to synthetic oxytocin. So definitely high stress for the baby, but also for the mother, you know, some of the impact of this is the extra stresses for the mother because, you know, contractions are stronger and closer together. That's a lot for the mother to deal with. It can overwhelm her natural calming, connecting, pain relieving mechanisms for the labor. So you know, the mother's more likely from what we're looking at to go into like a stress pattern. And there's all these mechanisms, um, I hope that I've emphasized to keep the mother out of stress and labor. I mean, it's like mother nature knows that labor is going to be a stressful event. So she gives all the mother all these oxytocin and parasympathetic nervous system, A, to help her to stay out of the worst of stress. And it is, you know, it's, it's a eustress experience. It's unavoidable. You know, it's an intense experience. So I'm not saying that that stress is going to make the mother totally calm through the whole of labor and birth, but it's going to help her compared to what it would be without it. But when we get high levels of, when we get synthetic oxytocin causing these stronger, longer contractions or stronger, closer together contractions, which is usually at higher doses, then that can kind of overwhelm the mother's stress coping mechanisms from a physiological point of view the parasympathetic nervous system is shift to her into stress as well so that's one of the concerns that we have and yeah and and at low levels it may not cause harm if, if it's not shifting the stress system but at high levels definitely we don't think that that's um a good thing for laboring women yeah what you just described was totally my first birth i had pitocin and then that stressed the baby out. Her heart rate went down to 20 beats per minute and ended up with a C-section where she had low glucose and low temperature. So it really does. I have seen that firsthand, how when you interrupt that hormonal orchestration, some of the complications that can happen. So would you, after studying oxytocin, what is one thing that you just wish every woman would know? <laughs> if one yeah. thing could get out there about your research right now, what would that be? 
Yeah. Well, I just want to go back a step because there's something I didn't cover actually. We talked about synthetic oxytocin and the way that might disrupt. But in fact, one of the 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 things that that is a problem with synthetic oxytocin is so often it leads to a co-intervention of epidurals. And that might have been your story too, Ali. But you know, those roots painful, stronger, close together contractions can overwhelm our own natural pain relief. And then we need something stronger like an epidural. And epidurals actually significantly interfere with oxytocin because the oxytocin system depends on a positive feedback loop. I'm going to, I won't go into detail, but I'll refer you to the epidural blogs and my website. But basically, if we stop the sensations coming back to the, the laboring female's brain, and this is all mammals as well, it's actually been tried in sheep and cows, she stops releasing oxytocin. So her oxytocin levels go down, her contractions tend to slow down, but she's in labor, you know, and often she needs high levels of synthetic oxytocin and or she has problems pushing her baby out because that's when you really need those high levels of oxytocin to have an effective, efficient birthing, you know, second stage, we call it. But the other problem with um, epidurals is they actually reduce oxytocin release into the brain. So you lose those calming, connecting, pain relieving effects. You lose that switching on of the reward and pleasure centers. And I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop there. Um, You know, we talked a bit about cesareans as well, but there are ways to fill in those hormonal gaps, as I call them. So what's really important is to recognize it. Yes, this is something's happened that shouldn't have happened or vice versa. Something shouldn't have happened that did happen. And it's caused a hormonal gap, you know, pre-labor cesarean, none of this hormonal orchestration in labor cesarean, missing the peaks, epidurals, oxytocin goes down, synthetic oxytocin stress system gets activated. How can we fill in those hormonal gaps? And it's really very simple is skin to skin and breastfeeding. So something anyone can do, put their baby skin to skin after the birth as soon as possible. You know, if you can make an arrangement with your caregivers to have your baby on your belly, even natural cesareans are doing that, putting the baby straight from the uterus onto the mother's chest. So skin to skin and then and that, that releases oxytocin for the mother, for the baby. It's calming and connecting. It's pain relieving as well. And then breastfeeding. And as we mentioned, every breastfeeding episode, the letdown reflex releases oxytocin for the mother and for the baby as well. So I want to leave listeners with that recipe for filling in hormonal gaps because sometimes these interventions are needed. Sometimes we have them maybe when they're not needed, but anyway, we get left with this hormonal gap. So one of the things I'd like to leave people with is, you know, we can heal, you can heal a bad birth. You can overcome the trauma you can do it better next time and you can fill in some of those hormonal gaps with skin to skin and breastfeeding and you know if you think about an evolution there's nowhere for the baby to be except skin to skin on the mother or another adult and it keeps the baby warm there's a whole lot of magical things about skin to skin so yeah the things I'd want people to know is your body is superbly designed through these 63 million years of um, evolution through mother nature's superb design through God's superb design Ideal if you can have the support mechanisms that are going to support physiological birth. The experts in physiological birth are midwives. Doctors, obstetricians are not trained in physiological birth. They're not the experts. It's like going to McDonald's for a porterhouse steak. You know, it's not on offer. So you want the expert there. You want to have your own midwife. Ideally, if that's not possible, a doula, a supportive birth companion to take into hospital with you or even to have at home. So so you need to create the circumstances and the model of care, as we call it, is probably the most 
most influential on your birth outcome, you know, who you choose to be there. And, you know, the great thing about midwives and doulas is they've seen it and they've seen physiological birth and they know it exists. It's not a mythical creature. And look, obstetricians can, you know, are fantastic when you need the help, but they could do their whole training and work for years and never see the kind of physiological birth you've seen at home. And as you said, Ali, the look on women's faces, you know, it, it's obvious that there's something magical happening and that's Mother Nature's superb design. So in a nutshell, trust your body, trust your baby and trust birth. You know, it's all designed to unfold optimally and superbly. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for going into that hormonal gap and giving us hope to heal from that because the reality is a lot of women who are listening to this podcast have either had a very traumatic birth or want to prevent a traumatic birth. And so that is so helpful to know. And I know for myself, after my traumatic C-section, I didn't even think my baby was mine for three weeks. I was so traumatized by it. I didn't see her be born. I didn't get the skin to skin immediately. Breastfeeding was hard, but it was that breastfeeding for that whole year that really started to bond us and to heal. And so that's so beautiful. I love that you went into that. Well, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show and just explain your expertise to my listeners. I appreciate it so much. Is there any last words? I know you trust birth. That is so wonderful. Is there anything else you'd leave us with today? Yes. Well, I, I want to reiterate what you said, really, that birth is not just one day in a woman's life. It's a, it's an experience you remember for the rest of your life. So thinking about it and planning it and choosing a model of care that's going to increase your chances of physiological birth, like home birth. You know, if you look at the studies for home birth, I mean, the chance of having a cesarean is about one third or, or, or less than your chance of going to hospital. So home birth is a great choice if you're not, if you don't feel comfortable with that, because it really is about how, where you feel safe on that deep primal level, you know, if you don't want to do it at home, if that's not safe for you, and then take a doula to hospital with you, you know, make sure that you line up the circumstances for you to have a birth and maybe a, a physiological birth. Maybe I'll just leave you with one thought, which is that the hormonal orchestration of labor and birth of having a baby is almost identical to the hormonal orchestration of making a baby. So you want to choose circumstances that you could potentially make a baby in, and that will be the ideal circumstance to have a baby. Yes. Great point. <laughs> Good thing to think about. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. I will post all of the links so you can connect with her blog and order her book if you have not read that yet. And so I just so appreciate you and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Ellie, and many blessings to all of the listeners. I hope that you have beautiful births and beautiful babies. Thank you again to Dr. Sarah for all of that amazing information. Oh my goodness. My mind was blown so many times during that. And there's so many more questions I would love to ask her. She's just so knowledgeable. Education is powerful, isn't it? I know every time I hear about how amazing our bodies were created, it just makes me more and more confident in this process of birth. Check out the links in the show notes and get connected with Dr. Sarah. Order her book before the book study starts. And also, if you loved this episode, would you take a moment and just leave a review? That would be so amazing. Stay empowered and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Empowered Birth Podcast.